0: Good evening, everybody. Let me pray just one more time. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for those of us that are gathered here. Thank you for each one of these people and their families. And Father, I pray that tonight you would enable us to hear your word. God, please speak to us. We are desperately in need of you, of your word, of what you've told us here. And so, Father, I pray that we would be open tonight to receive with meekness, this implanted word, which is able by your power to save our souls, because your word is Christ. And so, Father, help us see, help us hear, help us believe. Please help me preach. Please be with me, Father, that uh, my tone, my content, none of these things would dishonor you or get in the way. I ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight uh, brings us to the third frenemy of Job's, Zophar. And the final dialogues of their debate with Job, um, Zophar closes out the second cycle before Eliphaz speaks again. But Zophar has no third speech in the third cycle. Remember, we've looked at um, we've looked at Eliphaz, Bildad, and now we're looking at Zophar. We looked at at those two men, their second and their third arguments with or against Job, and now we come to Zophar's second. But Zophar won't have a third. What I think. The author is doing is showing us, for one, that the debate has worn down, right? The friends have failed to convince Job that he needs to repent. By the time it's Zophar's turn to speak for what would be the third time, he has nothing to say. But I think the second speech of Zophar here shows us why. Zophar's speech doesn't advance the argument at all, right? He adds nothing new. He's stuck in the view that Job's hope is false because he sinned against God. There's no room in Zophar's mind at all for an exception to the retribution system these friends have all proposed. And what I'd like us to do tonight, if we can, is try to zero in with some finality tonight on what might be, what might be the deepest sin these friends are committing against Job or the thing that at least sums up what the real issue is. As we've been talking through these dialogues, it's probably been pretty easy for us to distance ourselves from the friends or at least want to distance ourselves from his friends but because every word of God proves true because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us we probably need to let it sink in tonight that there is some of these friends inside of all of us there's no place in the heart of a believer for a lack of mercy we all have the desire inside us to figure things out, don't we? We like things to be clean. We like them to be like them to be cut and dry. We want to have answers. We want to maybe it's, you know we want to have something to calm our own minds and souls, or our own questions. Maybe particularly when there is suffering, we want to be able to say this thing happened because of that. We don't like ambiguity. Right? We don't, we don't like mystery unless we benefit from it. If we were to benefit from not all the details being known, then we like mystery, but normally we don't like it. This need of ours to know everything, to figure everything out, to have an answer becomes a major liability when it comes to who we are as proclaimers of Jesus in the world. We're not called to evaluate worthiness. We're not called to determine whether someone is a candidate for mercy. In fact, our need to do that, our need to know all the answers and to put people in classes of worthy or unworthy is a testimony probably to how much we still fail to grasp in our own hearts the depth of the gospel, of what it means that we have been forgiven and accepted by God. Zophar paints a wonderfully tragic picture of what happens when we give a wide berth to our own opinions. If you were to look back on this, the friends all have very thin skins, don't they? They're, they're very able to dish it out, but they cannot take it. So, so they get more cruel as the argument goes on. And by the time we come to chapter 20, I mean, just imagine the gall of telling Job that it's his fault his children are dead. Or just, just, just think about saying that to somebody. So, um, by the time we come to chapter 20, it's, it's clear that Zophar cares much more about his own wounded ego than he does about his friend. You know, how, how could they, just on a human level, how could these men have failed to be compassionate to their friend in light of what he's suffering? That, that's how messed up human beings are. We, we can just be very unmerciful, very unmerciful. We evaluate the suffering of other people based on whether or not we think they deserve it. And if we think they do, if we think they did something wrong and that's why this happened to them, we can turn a blind eye on them as a human being very quickly, very too quickly. Because we still lack a deep sense, I think, of what salvation is, of really what it is that Jesus has done for us Zophar tried to terrify joe with his description of the punishment that awaited him for being so wicked while joe reminded him that things were not as cut and dry as the ultimately worthless counsel of his friends claimed they were the mercy of jesus tonight should forever alter our position towards those who are suffering regardless of the reasons regardless of the reasons so May we hear and believe God's Word together? I'm going to read Zophar's final speech. This is chapter 20, verses 1 through 29 of Job. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. That's scary to say, right? Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless, but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens, and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. That's nice. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and he holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten, therefore his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Now, I want to walk through this, but just think for a minute. His description of the wicked would that fit like a Hugh Hefner? Is that how he went out? No, no. If you remember, in chapter eighteen, Bildad described described what life under God's judgment was like, right, implying that. This was what Job's suffering was a picture of. Job agreed at the beginning of chapter 19 that yes, I am under the judgment of God, obviously, but he insisted he didn't deserve it. His suffering was out of proportion to anything he was aware of doing. Zophar, remember this, had been sitting there the whole time listening to all of it and is furious about this. Furious about Job's claim to have hope. He is literally offended by his claim of innocence. How dare Job pretend that he is righteous, especially when righteous people don't suffer like this. So the main thrust of his response to Job is not only to reaffirm what Bildad has said, but to deepen the imagery of how horrible punishment for the wicked is going to be. So as we read through chapter 20, he describes the fate of the wicked in three ways. First, In verses 1 through 11, he talks about how the wicked will ultimately be disappointed because whatever joy they experience is fading. Right? That's verse 3. In fact, he says that that has been clear since the dawn of time, basically, in verse 4. No matter how high the wicked get, they will still perish forever like their own dung. Right? Rest assured, Job, all the enjoyment of the wicked will turn to ash in their mouths. And here's the thing. Ultimately, that's true, isn't it? Human happiness is very short-lived. They may have times of happiness, but they won't last. So why, in light of the fact that so much of what these men say is, is ultimately true, why does God end up having such an issue with the words of the friends? We, we, we You almost have to read Job with, with the, the the prologue, chapters 1 and 2, and the, the epilogue, chapter 42. That's, those always have to be in our minds. When we're reading Job, the reason God has such an issue with the words of the friends is because their words don't apply to Job. Right? He, God has not, God's main issue doesn't appear to be what they're saying, but why they're saying it. Job is not suffering because he is wicked. Truth applied incorrectly is irrelevant, mean, hurtful, and worthless. Zophar is not after the truth. Zophar wants to believe that Job is wicked, and intent is prior to content. Right? What we want to happen shapes what we say. The next way Zophar describes the fate of the wicked is in verses 12-19. through He says, "...they'll be poisoned by deceptively sweet evil." What the wicked enjoy going down will end up making them vomit. It will poison them and kill them. Again, that's true. Evil tastes good, but it always leads to nausea and vomiting, sometimes literally. But that's all white noise here. We have no evidence. We have evidence to the contrary. We have no evidence that Job just drank down as much evil as he could, and that's why he's suffering. And lastly for Zophar, the wicked will eventually be overwhelmed by inescapable wrath. In verses 20 to 29, he's more blunt than ever here, right? Job, you are going to pay for what you've done. You can't escape it. There's no appeal. You're hopeless. You're going to be consumed by God's wrath because you're wicked. That's verse 29. Do you see how all of their speculation has made them more confident in their position, not less? The less they know, the more confident they get. Their ramblings have made them dogmatic, not made them uncertain. There's a reason for that. I think we, we'll talk about that later. Rambling and speculation comes from our desire for our own glory. Which is why when we do it, it just gets worse. We get actually more certain. When truth is not informed by mercy and grace between us, the result is always self-righteousness, overconfidence, and eventually cruelty and utter lack of compassion. How did we get here right? with these friends? What have they found out about Job that they've become so confident that he's wicked and is going to be punished even more than he already is? Nothing. Nothing has happened. Nothing has been revealed. They just speculated and haven't been able to win the argument and convince him to repent. Notice here, that's very instructive. Zophar considers Job to be so hopeless now, he doesn't even appeal to him to repent this time like he did the first time. That's gone. Job can't even repent now in Zophar's mind. He's too far gone. The proof of Job being too far gone is that he doesn't agree with Zophar. So all Zophar can see for Job is wrath because God inevitably destroys the wicked and apparently Job is the worst they've ever seen. So Job responds in chapter 21. Let me read this as quickly as I can. Then Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words. And let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? That's that's such a great question. How often is it, so far that what you're saying happens actually happens? That their calamity comes upon them? That God distributes pain in His anger? That they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let Him pay it out to them, that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that He judges those who are high? One dies in his full vigor, being holy at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads, and do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face, and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left to your answers but falsehood. Falsehood. If you listen to the first five verses or so here, you can hear Job's broken heart. He's saying to them, remember, these were friends. These were friends. He's saying to them, if you guys could just be quiet and stop talking for just a minute, maybe you'd be able to show me a little bit of compassion. Do you have any idea what I'm going through right now? He's almost saying, if you can be kind for just a minute and try to understand, if you could just sit here with me and listen, then you can go back to mocking me. But can you at least give me that? Can we at least have a little bit of peace and quiet? He just wants a little break. It's very sad. I just want to, it's taken us a while to move through Job, so we forget what this man has lost and what he suffered in the ash pile that he's sitting in. He's lost everything, everything. And it's like he's saying to his friends, look at me. Can we stop arguing? Do you see me? Do you you see my body? Look at my body. I'm scraping myself with pots here. My my wife doesn't want anything to do with me. My, My children are dead. They're gone. Can you just look? Look at me. See me. He says, I'm not even complaining against you. Like, It's God that's not answering me. It's God that won't clear my name. Right? Can't you see that? He's saying to them, when I think about what has happened to me, I start shaking. I can barely take this anymore. And then Job goes on to Zophar's threefold argument with three very clear rebuttals of his own. In verses 7-16, through 16, he notes that wicked people are often very happy. As a matter of fact. He asks in verse 7, If your system is so valid, why do the wicked prosper at all? At all. Zophar can't see it, but that question alone undercuts his whole argument. Job is saying, if if the wicked enjoy even temporary joy, as Zophar has admitted they do, then the retribution formula is not as absolute as he says it is. As they're all pretending it is. There just is not a perfect correlation all the time between how a person behaves and the consequences of their actions. There's not always a perfect correlation, beloved. Sometimes people get what they're due. Most of the time, they don't. Not everything is judgment. Not everything is judgment. In chapter 20, verse 5, Zophar said, The joy of the godless is but for a moment. Job is saying, Well, that's a pretty long moment. From my perspective. Job affirms that there is a moral order out there, but it's not established as solidly as the friends portray it. That's what really separates Job from his friends while we're talking about it. His willingness to say it's not cut and dry. Like, I hear you, but it's not as cut and dry as you're making it sound. His second argument in verses 17 through 26 is that it seems to him that wicked people are actually very rarely punished. Right? He says there's a wicked, wealthy man who is healthy all his life and then dies peacefully while a man, maybe like Job, who has labored to be righteous, is miserable and then dies. And that's the end of the story. And he asks in light of that, who had a better life here on earth? We sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing Tonight, which is a great Christmas hymn. It always reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life. Remember the end of It's a Wonderful Life? It's one of the best movies ever made. It it was... we tried to show that to my kids that were way too young and about halfway through the movie my daughter Sophia looks at me and says this guy doesn't have a wonderful life he has a horrible life (laughs) 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 but yeah I mean that's you you take a George Bailey I know it's fiction but you would think a guy like that would do well and I know at the end it was beautiful it's great it's one of the best moments in cinematic history that last scene in this wonderful life—it's beautiful. But but I, he got kicked around his entire life. Not Mr. Potter. I mean, he just he just did great. And the, the job job is saying to Zophar, far. Yeah, I, yeah. But I mean, look around. You honestly believe that wicked people always get their comeuppance? No, they don't. No, they don't. The person that has the the, the better life is in in Job's view is the person that didn't care about God and lived however they wanted to. They didn't have the extra burden of following God. The one one that has the better life is the one that would say, verse 15, what is God that we should serve Him? What profit is it to pray to Him? Job is probably wondering the same thing about right now. What good did it do for me to pray all those years and try to honor God and offer up those sacrifices? Imagine! The attention Job gave to trying to please to, to try to please God and be righteous, and this is his lot. As far as what we can observe with our eyes, that's basically the way it is. You know, if, if we're honest, if we did some math, like I mentioned Hugh Hefner earlier, just just lives the life that he lived and then he dies peacefully. Like like those kinds of things make people ask questions. You take like a then you take guys like Rich Mullins. I don't know if you know that name or not, but he wrote beautiful songs was about the grace and mercy of Jesus. He didn't even receive his own paychecks. This, this is an amazing thing. Rich Mullins didn't take his own paychecks for all the royalties on his songs. He could have lived very well, right, very well. And he wouldn't even take the checks. He had them go right to the elders of his church. And he entrusted to them the authority to say, this is what's needed in the church, and Rich, there's a, there's a small stipend Rich can live off of. That's the kind of guy that he was. He spent most of his time in orphanages and Indian reservations or in third world countries loving and serving the poor. One night after a concert, he pulls over to help a stranger change a flat tire. He's hit by a Jeep and killed instantly. Gone. Gone. While countless insolent, arrogant, belligerent haters of God can mock him openly, spit on his name, Ridiculous church Indulge their flesh And the last time I checked They get richer and prettier As time goes on This is true Right For the most part This is the way it is here We cannot keep pretending That blessing always comes to the good And the bad will always get there Get theirs Baloney Tell that to Job Tell that to Jesus Tell it to Rich Mullins' mom Tell it to Bathsheba Or Uriah's dad do you know what we should be thinking, beloved, as we read Job, especially in moments like this? We should be thinking to ourselves, we should be, have humility and be thinking to ourselves, life in this world is just hard. And sometimes it's too hard to understand. Life is hard on people. I can understand people's frustration and their unbelief and their questions. I really can. Now. You and I know there's more to it than this, than what Job is saying. We know there's more to it. We know that sin is temporarily sweet. We know that. We know that the wages of sin is death. But we do not know that because we have observed that. We know that because God has revealed it to us. That's why we know what I just said. Not because we see it. We didn't learn it by observing it. We learned it because God has revealed it to us in His Word. He's opened our eyes. He's given us life and enabled us to see something that other people cannot see. Not because they're too dumb to see it, but because God has not revealed it to them. What can be observed is insufficient to grant complete and total understanding of any one situation. Finally, in verses 27-33... to Job observes that even in death, the wicked still seem to prosper. Right, That's what he's talking about. After their easy lives, they're given these grand funerals. People build memorials for them that are guarded so they won't be desecrated. They rest peacefully in the valley where people are buried. They're popular still. Their legacy continues because people who are still alive want to be like them, so they follow their way of life. They get a lasting legacy. So Zophar's doctrine of retribution has a lot to answer for if it's supposed to explain suffering. It's insufficient to explain it. Job reveals here that the wicked aren't even behaving this way because they're ignorant of God. Notice that. He says they know God is there very well. They deliberately reject Him and still they don't pay. Where is God? Where is the reckoning? Beloved, in the wisdom literature of God's holy word where Job is, we are being expressly taught that God does not always explain what he is doing. His plans often deviate from the general patterns we observe in life. Sometimes we will not have an explanation. And beloved, when we don't, we cannot, must not speculate, or we will end up where Job's friends have ended up speculation will lead to the self-rightly dogmatic evaluation of everything. Like there's always an easy answer. Well, that happened because of this and this. What is observable does not tell the whole story. Very rarely does what is observable tell the whole story about someone or something. So Job gives a final rebuke to his friends in verse 34, right? How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There's nothing left Of your answers, but falsehood. So he ends up right where he started in chapter twenty-one. If you guys could just shut up for five minutes, you would give me a little bit of comfort. Their system is pure nonsense, which is obvious to anyone with 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 one good eye. Right? It's not as cut and dry as Zophar wants to be. Sometimes the wicked suffer. Sometimes people immediately get what they deserve. There are shows like America's Dumbest Criminals where it's just instantaneous. You mess up and you get busted. But that's very rare. Very rare. All the injustice. Just think, beloved, right now of the news stories you know and the things going on in our country and in our world. Just think of the mounting hill of injustice that is happening right now. Of wicked people that are not anywhere near getting what they deserve and might even be flourishing. Job sees that. And he hasn't even done anything anyway. Job's view of God is much more complex than the view of his friends. And it's the better view. He's not the simplistic one. Life is more complicated than Job's friends will allow. Which is probably why Job has any hope at all, actually. Because he realizes there's something he's not seeing. And that gives him hope. Yes, his life is bleak and difficult to say the least. But it's also hope-giving because it means the book isn't closed. If that's all there is, if all there is is that he knows it's not over yet, and he knows that there's a righteous God, then he can hang on to that. He says, I can hang on to that. That's what I'm going to hold on to. He says in essence here to Zophar, you want to say that bad things happen to bad people? Okay, I agree that ultimately bad things will happen to bad people, but you only have to open your eyes to see that in this life, very good things often happen and keep happening to bad people. So if the wicked don't get what they deserve yet, job is saying i think isn't it possible that the righteous might experience bad things they don't deserve before they are ultimately vindicated i just asking. you can you look at it a different way isn't it possible then that i'm not wicked is that possible and your deduction here is totally false beloved there are things that we need to leave in god's hands and be quiet They are mysterious, and our perspective is hilariously limited compared to God's. And this need may be especially true for the way that we judge and evaluate others, particularly sinners. Where is the compassion of the redeemed for those who are broken? Where's our compassion We're always talking. We're always talking. Always pontificating about what's wrong with the world, why people are suffering, how wicked people are, because our categories are so rigid. They're so rigid. We act like we know everything. What do we know? We know a little bit more than they know because someone has been gracious to us. And in that way, we're no different than Job's friends tonight. A tragedy or a catastrophe of some kind happens in our world, comes on the news. A person suffers something horrible or goes through tremendous and unexpected difficulty. And you would think that Proverbs ten nineteen must have been blotted out of our Bibles. When words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. Now, why won't we hear that word? Why won't we hear that word? That where words are many, sin is not absent. The more we talk, the less likely we are to proclaim the truth. Why? Because we've not been granted sufficient enough insight to always trust our own observation. I understand sometimes things look certain ways. Why do we have to comment on it? Why? Why do we comment on the suffering of other people? Newspapers, TV, movies, music, social media, the internet, they've given us so many platforms. Platforms removed from actual face-to-face discourse. At least Job's friends had the guts to talk to him to his face. We don't need more platforms to be speaking. We need hearts broken by the reality of the gospel. When we look into the faces of our enemies, we don't see people. We're not seeing people here. We see ideologies and arguments and agendas. We don't see people. So we're arguing with an an agenda. We're arguing with an ideology. There's a person there representing it. And so what if they don't agree We aren't out here trying to win arguments. That's a person who knows what has made someone the way that they are. right? Who knows why someone thinks the way they do. Have we forgotten that we've been granted a ministry of reconciliation, not division. We're the reconcilers in the world. We're the peacemakers in the world. Every time, every person you see Every single person we see is an eternal soul whose life will issue very quickly into everlasting punishment or everlasting life. Every single person in the world. Beloved, we are not the be-all, end-all of this world. Our salvation has not granted us Jesus' ability to know what is really in people. It's John 2.25. We might know the why, but not always. Think about it. How often do you know all the details about something, you and I? How often do we really know all the details? We know what is decided we're allowed to know. How often do we actually have all the information? And we all know, not often, so why do we talk so much? We're just like the friends. we just on and on and on. We should be the last people on earth to jump on any bandwagon of condemnation. It's like when one sinful sibling laughs at the other sinful sibling for getting in trouble. What are you laughing at? Like, what's funny here? Like, well, how are you self-righteous in this moment? In the Gospel of John, the apostle basically implies throughout the book that the reason Jesus is rejected is because people live in the darkness. They can't see. They're blind. They don't want to come to the light because they'll be exposed. They'll stay in the darkness and reject Jesus. Jesus speculate re- and then judge because speculation always leads to judgment, right? It, it always leads to judgment, and Jesus tells us why we do that in John seven. How Jesus was treated is the culmination of the problem with Job's friends. In John seven eighteen, Jesus said to them, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood, Job says to his friend. In Jesus, there is no falsehood. Why? Because they spoke for their own glory. Jesus spoke for the glory of His Father. And if we are not speaking for the glory of our Father, we are speaking for the glory of ourselves. So what Jesus reveals about who we are, to speak on your own authority is to believe that because you have decided you are right, that you're right. Just like Job's friend's. As the God man, do you know why Jesus' words should be believed at the earthly level? Because there was nothing, there was nothing coloring them a certain way for His own advantage. He spoke for the glory of His Father. He didn't come here to win arguments. Jesus wasn't seeking His own glory when He spoke. He was seeking His Father's. That's why we should listen to Jesus. That's what He's saying. Nobody else has ever spoken like Jesus. Nobody's words are more pure than His. We speak on our own authority because we perpetually seek our own glory. You know what I mean. Doesn't it feel so good? Gossip. To run somebody down. Man, it feels good. I do this all the time. To my wife. It just occurred to me while that sentence was coming out of my mouth. If I see something on the news about like a terrible husband, I'll say like, man, I know I'm not perfect, but I would never do that. Right? Just so you know, babe. Right? (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Doesn't it make you feel good to pronounce judgment though? Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't it feel good to act like you know why? that you could walk in and say, well, let me tell you what's really going on here. Christians, brothers and sisters, we do this all the time. It feels good to pile on somebody and kick them while they're down. That's what is happening with Joe. That felt good to those guys. Of course it feels good. We're getting our reward when we do that. We're getting the glory we seek. And it is into that context, into that context, that Jesus says to them in John 7.24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Which means judging by appearances is always wrong judgment. You see, he sets those, he makes those things mutually exclusive. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Beloved, we're not meant to be people who speak based purely on what we observe. We are sent into the world to judge with right judgment. To be the one people on the planet that do that. And right judgment not only has the sense to wait for God to make things plain, it has the sense to be quiet when He hasn't. And trust what has been revealed. And most of the time, if you want to get really honest, most of the time, the only body of information that we will really be able to know is the Gospel. It's the Gospel. There's no way to see anything clearly or correctly until Jesus shines His light on it. In the quest of Job's friends to get glory for their words, they dehumanized, looked over, condemned, mistreated, and almost destroyed their own friend. And they themselves will require a mediator with blood sacrifices to be forgiven for it in chapter 42. They did not have the necessary evidence to condemn Job. All they had were the appearances. And yes, it looked like you were being punished. That should only happen to a bad person. Yes, it looked that way. What did he do to get himself into that position is what we would all ask. Do you ever realize that we don't even give any more homeless people the benefit of the doubt? They're lazy bums. It's not even, we don't even discuss it. What did they do? What decisions did they make to get there? Say, most of the time, Tony, it's probably true that they, I I know. But you know what? I don't know. We don't know. We, We don't know. What can be observed is rarely enough to cast right judgment. When our approach to others is not grounded in and covered by the gospel, we will always turn into Job's friends. Beloved, we cannot deduce the spiritual state of a man or a woman from their current state of either happiness and prosperity or from their present sufferings. We, we just don't have enough information. It's not just stupid it's deeply hurtful to suppose that we can look at someone's situation and know what the state of their heart is before God. Resolution in Job comes at the end. Only the end will finally reveal the heart, beloved. Only the end will finally reveal the heart. Sympathy and mercy and compassion are holy things, especially in light of the gospel. Here's what the gospel reveals, right? God does have exhaustive knowledge of everything. God does have exhaustive knowledge of us, of all of us, every single one of us. He knows how wicked the world is. He knows what it's full of. He knows what resides in the hearts of every single person. And I mean, way down into the catacombs and basements and closets, we deep inside of us where who we really are lives. He knows all of that. He knows every why. He knows every what. He knows every how. So He sent His Son to condemn and destroy us. No, He didn't. He sent His Son to save us. In light of all the information God has. God sent His Son with my rap sheet sitting right in front of Him. He has chosen to be gracious and compassionate to us. So I ask it again, where is the compassion of the redeemed for the world, for the broken? The mercy of Jesus should forever alter our position towards those who are suffering, regardless of the reasons. We're not talking about excusing or looking over sin. We're not talking about pronouncing guilty people as innocent. We're talking about one thing, our disposition towards guilty people. Yes, the wages of sin is death. Yes, but beloved, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Free gift. You know, the one that you and I got. You remember that? You remember grace? You remember that? We're not clean enough. We're not clean enough to start dealing out death and unrighteous judgment. There is a place for judgment. Make no mistake, but God will handle that. God will make it plain. When we say, without knowing, that this horrible thing is happening because of that, we are Job's friends every time. It is amazing what Christians are able to just blanketly call the judgment of God. Did did you have a vision? Did God appear to us in the night and say, there are going to be the forest fires in California because of this? No. No, but what do we do? Uh, Well, you know, it's probably being judged by God. Or maybe the EPA stinks and they can't really fight the fires effectively. If we don't know, speculating that something is the judgment of God of all things is not only hurtful, it's wrong. And we do this all the time. 9-11. Well, we shouldn't have let in this in our country. Who got told by God that that was the judgment of God? Where is that in the scripture? What does God owe? God doesn't owe America any more than he owes Guam. Like, where did we get this information? We just trumpet it out there. There's a disaster. Something horrible happens. We just trumpet it out there. Yeah, probably, You know, you're being judged. We, America did this. We're being judged by God. Let it go. We don't know. What is the point of pontificating in that situation but to muddy water that's already dirty to the lost? We're just like the friends when we do that. What are we trying to accomplish by that? We just want people to feel guilty. We want them to know they're wicked and we want them to know they're guilty because somehow that will do the trick. What if it's, what if what's happening to people has nothing to do with their sins? That particular thing. What if it has nothing to do with their sins? And the answer is in the question, we don't know, do we? And if we don't know, we can't speak. We know one thing. We know that Jesus came to save sinners. We all ought to believe that we're the worst one. Since we don't know, why would we speculate unless our priority is to get other people to just know that they're wicked? I mean, beloved, when people's homes were burning down in California, look, I I, I know all the issues. I live there. I know the issues with the state. I know that it's godless and wicked. I, I, I know all of that. But I don't know. Like, people's homes are burning down. They're literally like Job sitting in the ashes. And we're walking around. Well, you probably shouldn't have tried to kick the Bible out of your state. We, we have no idea whether or not that's the judgment of God. What are we doing? We act like we're the avengers, right? Like, like we're supposed to bring about God's revenge on sinners. No, no, no. Vengeance is His. God will repay. He hasn't given us that task. We're called to go and make disciples of all nations. We're not called to mete out God's vengeance. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Why Why do we do it? But in the New Testament telling the church to go out and condemn the world for its sins, none. That doesn't mean they aren't sinners. That doesn't mean they don't need to repent. Of course they do. But what leads to repentance? What attribute has God employed to lead people to repentance in Romans 2, 4? His kindness. God has been kind and patient so that we will repent. Do we honestly think that as His representatives here that we should employ a different strategy? You know, Don't you know how kind God is, you stupid sinner? Don't want your life to stink so bad? Maybe you should make better decisions. Don't want your children to be going off the rails? Well, maybe you should take them to church. Want to know why your children are suffering? Want to know why things never come together for you? That's not who we are. We have no idea. At the end of the day, we do not have enough information from what we observe to make the judgments we make. What we know is the gospel, that all are sinners, all need to repent, all are in need of Christ. That's what we know. What else are we talking about? God has shown us immeasurable mercy. Why would we hoard it? Like... I know the evil of the world is rampant and wicked. I just don't understand why we are impatient with sinners. I know that sounds very pious, but I'm asking myself, where where does the impatience with other people's wickedness come from? We're not him. We're not high enough. We don't have enough insight to see so clearly that we can be dogmatic without revelation from God. I mean, think about this. If we would have been traveling to Jerusalem as your average first century Jewish person for the Passover, sometime around 29 to 34 A.D., and we saw Jesus hanging on a cross outside the city, what would we have thought of him from what we were observing? He's a criminal. I mean, what else can it be? Right? Only guilty people get crucified. And because it's a crucifixion, he must be especially evil. So we probably would have tagged this figure here hanging in the middle of these two thieves as a horrible sinner. What could be further from the truth, right? But you wouldn't have known that from what you observe. We don't do well when we see suffering because we all tend towards retribution theology. That's what's natural, karma. Less reliance on ourselves, beloved, and more on Jesus. Less reliance on our own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. Don't trust it. Don't feed it. The suffering of Job is not only pushing us to see the unjust suffering one day of the truly righteous one, right? Jesus. But to reveal our tendency to misunderstand it. It is our inability to deduce truth properly from what we see that is the ultimate example in Job of our fallenness and the proof of how badly we need a Redeemer. If our eternal life is based on the suffering of a righteous man for us, we ought to at least be able to dial back a little bit our snap judgments and just be merciful. Again, don't Don't straw man that. Well, we're just supposed to accept, I didn't say that. I'm talking about our disposition towards sinners. It wouldn't always be the worst thing to just not comment. To lay our hands over our mouths and wait at least a few minutes before we start talking. The mercy of Jesus should forever alter our position towards those who are suffering regardless of the reasons. Because the reality right now is that God not only judges sinners, He also is extending grace to them. We need the Gospel tonight, don't we? Yeah. See what the Bible does? See what God does? He just lays you open. He just lays you out there. And then He gives you His Son. He gives you His Son. God has received the offering of Jesus' humility for us. God doesn't need our humility, but our neighbor does. Let us come before the cross tonight, then, and remind ourselves of the gospel. Listen, I know it's tempting, and it might even be foolish of me to say this after a 51 minutes and counting sermon. I have a few more sentences, and we're done, I promise. Don't reflect on your shortcomings and failures right now. None of us should be doing that. Reflect on the gospel right now. Because two or three days from now when the sting of the emotions wear off, we're going to snap back into being judgmental people and Christ is going to be right there. I'm not telling you to go out and be judgmental. Not telling you to go sin so that grace may abound. I'm telling you we're going to sin and grace is going to abound. There's a difference. Jesus is too good. And what we've received is too good, too sufficient, and too real for us to be so quickly unmerciful, beloved. Our hope is not tonight that we can become more humble for our neighbors. Our hope is that Jesus has been humble for us, so we rest in his performance. That's how we're transformed. The gospel is the power of God tonight for salvation, not our will not our bad feelings, not our guilt, not our commitments to be better people. There is no power in those things to save us. The power tonight is in the gospel. It's in Christ. Let's pray and then we'll sing a song and close. Father, I thank you tonight for your son, for us, for me, God. I thank you so much for his mercy, for his kindness, for his compassion, for his immeasurable patience I praise you and I thank you and so God would you be with us tonight as we reflect on this Lord don't let us stay if we've been convicted tonight don't let us stay in this place where we think that you're angry with us your son has absorbed your wrath against us once and for all it's gone Lord there is a better way a more peaceful happy way for us to live would you lead us into it Father we pray I pray that if anyone needs to come and pray tonight, if anyone needs to believe on you, and this is the moment, Father, would you bring it about? Lord, if anyone needs to come and pray, would you move in their heart and enable them to do so? I ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.